Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Baya, joined again this week by my buddy and broker, Clint Flowers. How you doing, Clint? Good, buddy. It's enjoying a week of dry weather, finally. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, I'll tell you, this time of year, I love to see that rain coming because that just means that those deer are getting what they need from their natural vegetation. It seems like years when we have good summer rainfall, you can expect to see some really big bucks come fall as they're putting on that antler. And, you know, one of the things that everybody's starting to think about right now is preparation for their fall food pots. And this week's show is going to be interesting because we're going to be talking about something that not a lot of hunters and food plotters have adopted yet, and that's liquid fertilizer. We've all fertilized our food plots, and we know that that can be a challenge sometimes, getting the right the uh, the right ratio. Uh, I, you got a little liming you got to do on your place, right? Yeah, we thought it was a little. Turned out to be a lot. Well, and you know, if you don't have that pH right, that changes things with regards to how much fertilizer you need to put out. And liquid fertilizer solves some of those issues. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit later in the show today. Uh, in addition to discussing liquid fertilizer specifically for food plots, uh, we're going to get another timber prices update from Jonathan Smith at Timber Mart South. So it's going to be a good show. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by Bay County Armory. If you're looking to build an AR-10 or AR-15, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. They're built for the tasks you're going to tackle, whether that's hunting, defense, or something else altogether. Bay County Armory purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s. They'll guide you in designing the firearm of your dreams. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. All right, Clint, let's get right into it and go check back in with Jonathan Smith of Timber Mart South. Jonathan, welcome back to Hunting Land. Last time we had you on, we talked about Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. Uh, what states are we going to be covering the timber market for today? Today, let's talk about Mississippi, South Carolina, and Tennessee and see what's going on in those areas. And, and just for folks that maybe don't know, what states do you guys cover at Timber Mart South? What, what, what's the full spectrum? So we cover 11 states from Virginia to eastern Texas. All right. Well, with coronavirus, has that changed anything yet? Are you seeing any anything that you can point to and say that this change is definitely COVID-related? For lack of a better term, I, I think it's caused probably more confusion for the markets than anything else. Uh, you've had meals that have uh, closed with an immediate response to the COVID-19 for uh, safety reasons and uh, their expectations of what they thought the market was going to do. Uh, but then after all of the uh, everybody stayed home, um, I think people began working on projects at home or uh, or continued with some construction progress projects that were already in place. And so I think the mills then saw the need to, to get back to work as much as they could. So they've They've done some shifting of uh, uh, work shifts and changing of uh, line patterns, but uh, most of the mills are, are back to work at some capacity and uh, are trying to produce their uh, finished products at some level, trying to keep up with the market demand. Well, let's get into Mississippi now. Tell us about the data you're going you, you're gonna to give us today, and, then, and what are we going to be comparing this to? So this data, uh, just to refresh, Timber Mart South, we get our information from uh, participants in the marketplace. Uh, we we don't participate in any of the transactions. We're getting this from from uh, uh, providers of data who are active in the marketplace. So they can be mills, landowners, just anyone, buyers, sellers, anybody that's actively uh, making transactions throughout the quarter. Uh, they send us their data once a quarter, and we put that. Uh, together in a report. Uh, so today I'll, I'll reference um, last year, uh, same period last year, so second quarter 2019. All right. Well, in Mississippi, what's going on with pulpwood? Mississippi, looking at uh, pulpwood, we're about uh, $4.50 um, for the second quarter 2020, uh, which was down significantly uh, below year over year, about a dollar, about a dollar sixty below last year. So, 
pretty substantial drop there when you look at it on a percentage basis, but that's uh, it's only about a 20% change from the previous quarter, so it's not a big uh, not a big drop there quarter over quarter. But if you look at it over a, a time period, uh, one year period, there you can see a, a bit of a drop. Uh, one thing I'll point out is Mississippi. We don't necessarily think about it this way, but if you rank our states against one another, Mississippi's pine pulpwood price is the lowest uh, pulpwood price that we have in our TMS region. Is there a reason for that? It's uh, markets. You know, you've got, if you think about Mississippi, Mississippi's got a, a lot of timber. It's about 64% uh, forest land, uh, but uh, it's it's got a very diverse ge- geography uh, from you know, you got everything from coastal regions, river deltas, a lot of ag land, all the way up to Appalachian foothills. So uh, if you factor that in on the state level, which is what we're looking at here, we're looking at state averages. Uh, TMS does have Region 1, Region 2 averages uh, that, that do uh, zero in a little bit closer. But uh, when you put all of those different geographies in there together, uh, you're you're factoring in a, a lot of different uh, markets, and so you can see that there are some markets there that very weak, don't have a lot of uh, opportunities to sell any wood, and that's probably playing a factor there. Well, that's pulp wood. Uh, is it any different? Is it any better with chip and saw and saw timber? Chip and saw and saw timber were both down about eight to fifteen uh, percent uh, year over year, about the same quarter over quarter. So pine saw timber was about $20.50 a ton, uh, and then chip and saw was about $3 and a quarter. So, I mean, $13 and a quarter, not $3, $13 and a quarter. So, um, you know, you got your standard hierarchy there between uh, putwood, chip and saw, and saw timber, uh, but they're uh, definitely in the lower quartile of our uh, states if you compare it to the to the rest of the TMS footprint. Well, that doesn't sound very good in the, in the world of pine. What about hardwood? Uh, is hardwood doing any better? Hardwood is a totally different game if you compare it to the rest of the South. Um, hardwood salt timber, uh, Mississippi ranks the number one price point there for the second quarter of 2020 with uh, uh, $38.50 a ton. So if you got any hardwood salt timber in Mississippi, you that's where your value rests right now. If you look at hardwood pulpwood, it was around uh, 9.88, uh, so it was it was almost $10 a ton for hardwood pulpwood, so almost do- or over double uh, what pine pulpwood was for second quarter 2020. How does that compare back to 2019? Are we up or down? Uh, so your hardwood saw timber is um, up just a little bit, up well, uh, up about $4 uh, over year over year. About a qu- about a nickel, uh, quarter over quarter. Uh, hardwood pulpwood uh, is down on both sides, uh, quarter over quarter in year over year, uh, but it's still a very strong product compared to the rest of the states in the South. And moving on to South Carolina, how are we looking there? Let me starting with pine saw timber. South Carolina pine saw timber was around twenty two fifty. And just uh, while we're talking about saw logs, if you think about it, uh, chip and saw uh, was about 17 bucks a ton. So both of those were down about 7% year over year uh, and relatively flat uh, quarter over quarter. And moving on down the chain to pine pulpwood, how are we looking there? Pine pulpwood was uh, uh, nine to around right around $9 a ton uh, on the stump. Uh, which was uh, pretty flat compared to quarter over quarter and down about $2 year over year. So uh, there has been some decline in the in the pine pulpwood price there in South Carolina. And over there compared to other parts of the South, I mean, how do they look on when you move into hardwood, you know, starting with salt timber, do they, are they stronger or weaker than us down here? L- looking at hardwood, so uh, – the hardwood saw logs, uh, South Carolina is much weaker than Alabama uh, is in relative to uh, uh, price point for second quarter 2020. Uh, hardwood saw timber was right around 24.50 a ton uh, for second quarter 2020. 
which was pretty flat compared to a year ago. Uh, and then your hardwood pulpwood was right around the southwide average was at eight, right around 850, 845 a ton. So, you know, a pretty average uh, hardwood pulpwood price uh, if you look at it on a southwide level. We were talking about those markets in Mississippi, you know, being a, a little bit weaker for, for pine. And why do you see that big of a, of a difference, do you think, between, you know, hardwood saw timber in South Carolina and, and Mississippi? That's a pretty big price difference. It's market related and it's also availability of product. Uh, Mississippi's got some good regions of uh, some good pockets of hardwood. They've got a lot of uh, river delta on the edge of the ag land and uh, on the the ridge and valley coming in. So they've got good good opportunity there. If you think about South Carolina, uh, for it to be such a small state, it is the smallest state in our footprint, um, and it's fairly forested, about 60% forested, but it's got a lot of diversity there from coastal plain all the way up to the Blue Ridge Mountains. So they don't quite have the surface area, if you will, to, to have the availability of the hardwood and the markets for the hardwood. Does their proximity to the, to the Appalachians, does, it, does that hurt them? Like, but there being so much hardwood in those, in those states that are dominated by the, the Smokies and the Blue Ridge Mountains and things of that nature? I think so, and and when we talk about Tennessee, you'll you'll see there that uh, I don't know that the Smokies and the Appalachians necessarily help you. Uh, a lot of times that's limiting because it's uh, it limits your availability to get the wood out. You've got a lot of federal lands, a lot of restrictions on uh, what you can do, but then you've also got uh, when the terrain gets too steep, it gets pretty expensive to get the wood out. So unless it's a really high value product. Uh, most of the time, it just stays in the in the natural state on the stump. Well, let's let's let that move us into Tennessee. So, how how are things different? What's the predominant uh, timber market in Tennessee? Are they a pine state or are they more hardwood? So, Tennessee is probably uh, two thirds. If you if you look at the landscape and um, you know what the the geography looks like there, about two thirds of it is in your typical hardwood type. Uh, terrain uh, and then the western one-third we divide pretty much in half with TMS but it's really more like the western one-third is more where your pine is grown uh, so you you get over to the eastern side of the state and you can you can grow some really valuable uh, high value species over there uh, which are you know kind of hard for us to track at, at our level uh, but there are a lot of, I mean, there there are some trees that are sold as individual trees in Tennessee, if you will. Well, let's let's get into those prices up there. Uh, maybe start out with the hardwood. How does Tennessee hardwood saw timber compare to Mississippi and South Carolina? Like I mentioned, you know, Mississippi was your uh, strongest uh, hardwood saw timber market. Uh, Tennessee is again not necessarily as reflective. Uh, but these are state averages, uh, so there is some variability there. But uh, hardwood saw timber in Tennessee was around $30 a ton. Uh, hardwood pulpwood was around $5.35. So, you know, those are significantly less than the southwide average uh, for hardwood pulpwood and then right in line with the southwide average for hardwood saw timber. All right, Jonathan, let's get into the pine situation in, in Tennessee. Where, what areas, uh, you know, what regions of the state are more pine predominant and how are the markets doing? So most of your pine in Tennessee comes from the western portion, the western, uh, more like the one-third of the state over where you get to the uh, uh, Gulf Coast um, or the uh, Gulf Coastal Plain, I think is the way it's termed uh, on some of the geography maps in Tennessee. Pine saw timber, chip and saw pulp wood were uh, $17.50, uh, $10 and $6 respectively. So again, you've got a good hierarchy there, you know, as you move up your product class, but the prices are not real strong. Those are uh, definitely the lowest pine prices that we have uh, for second quarter 2020 across the South. How does that compare back to 2019? I mean, those are those are abysmal prices, period. But how does that compare um, with terms to a drop? 
Compared to 2019, uh, there was a uh, an uptick of about a dollar on the pine pulpwood, which is kind of hard to believe there, and then uh, pretty flat for your saw timber prices there. Well, Jonathan, when it comes to the timber market, no news is typically good news. So, I mean, is there any news uh, out of Mississippi, South Carolina, and Tennessee with regards to openings and closures of mills or anything going on in those three states? Nothing really significant going on outside of, uh, you know, just the the closures with the COVID. Uh, you know, we had some announcements that they were closing and then opening back up. So hopefully uh, as we progress through the pandemic uh, that we can uh, get the mills back up running at full speed and uh, get the markets moving uh, here before too long. Yeah, get some throughput for these these landowners, yeah. Well, I know, uh, you know, as a landowner, it's important to stay on top of the current timber market prices. And you guys do that all over the all over the south. If folks want to look up more information on Timber Mart South, uh, where should they go? Uh, The easiest way to get to us is go to our website at timbermart-south.com. We would uh, be glad to talk with you about getting a subscription. Uh, We have we cover like us. Like I mentioned earlier, we cover 11 states from Virginia to eastern Texas, and um, we have state-level subscriptions for each of those. And so uh, give us a call. We'll be glad to uh, help you start getting some information. As I always say with pretty much anyone I talk with, uh, our information is is, is out there, but uh, the best source of information is to get it locally from a, a local professional so that they can help you. Markets are local, and uh, so if you can get that information, uh, you'll be much better served. Well, Jonathan, it was good to have you back on. We'll look forward to having you on again. Uh, Until the next time, stay safe out there, man. We'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Sounds good. Thank you. Well, Clint, that's um, not great news for guys that are growing trees, at least with regards to wanting to cut some down right now what do you what do you do in a market like this as a guy who owns land what's your advice to landowners right now when the timber market is just tough well it depends on which side of the fence you're on you know as a buyer uh, if i'm looking to acquire more you know i try to use this data to help help me negotiate better prices on additional timber land i mean that's what i'm trying to do right now i'm not i'm not taking this as bad news i'm i'm trying to buy more if you're a landowner you know, what we're telling our folks that, that might have timber that's ready to thin is to wait this market out, which we expect a, a good rebound in the fall, and especially into the first part of next year as we've got some new sawmills opening around here uh, and some news coming. You know, that's being aware of what's going on in your market locally. You know, as Jonathan pointed out, it's very, very important. You can't just go on these national and regional trends because many times some of these trends are, are very much local um so if you've got something coming in your market it's it's important to know about it know if you need to wait to thin because you you typically have a three to five year window you can wait the market out if you know if you don't like what's going on now especially in a plantation setting in a natural setting you can wait longer than that if you'd like to but you know there's opportunities for both sides right now it's just a matter of you know what your perspective and your timeline is a lot like the stock market when things are depressed that's when you need to be thinking about buying that's and, right. And uh, sounds like it's a good time for uh, for guys that are looking to buy timberland, for sure. This week's current timber prices segment has been brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. All right, Clint, our guest today is Chris Grantham and Chris operates Clark's Plot Nutrients. Today, we're going to be discussing the best liquid fertilizer for specifically for food plots and for deer. They do some things differently uh, with their mixes. We're going we're gonna to discuss that. Have you had a chance to use liquid fertilizer? on your place no not yet i've been a little nervous about it because i'm scared i'm gonna screw something up so i'm excited about this interview today so i can learn how to do it properly yeah uh, you know one of the one of the biggest challenges is 
calibrating your sprayer and making sure you're putting out enough, not too much. But liquid does solve a lot of problems that are caused with conventional fertilizers, granular fertilizers, uh, and also areas like we hunt where the soil isn't the, uh, maybe not in being the best shape at the start of our, our hunting season. So Chris, welcome to hunting land. Before we get into today's show, tell us a little bit about Clark's plot nutrients and uh, what regions you cover. Well, I, I appreciate y'all having me on today at, uh, to talk about the liquid fertilizers. Uh, we are located in Elba, Alabama, and we cover pretty much all the southeast with our with our foliar liquid products, which uh, is, we make all of our stuff over outside of uh, Statesboro, Georgia, and then I bring it back to Alabama and jug it and ship out from there, and we can ship it anywhere in the country, and we have shipped it all over the United States so far from one end to the other with uh, great results from everybody that, that's tried it and, and liked it. And it's, uh, we're growing this. We've, we're starting our fifth season on the market this year and uh, we've had great success and been, and been blessed to help a lot of people get the most out of their food plots. We developed this fertilizer specifically for the wildlife. It's a 612-6 with a 1% dietary calcium in it and the two main ingredients in a buck's rack is calcium and phosphorus and if you do a plant analysis on most any plant in the southeast you'll find that it's low in calcium and low in phosphorus so by putting it directly into the plant by spraying it on the leaves we're putting the two main ingredients that a buck needs in his rack directly in that food plot and it, it kind of turns the food plot into a mineral lick or anything or any plant that you spray it on where they can get the vitamins and and minerals that they're needing you know they they can come after they realize that they're getting what they need from that plant and it draws them to it. Chris you know I've talked with you before and you've told me about fertilizing native vegetation uh, with your liquid fertilizers and that existing native vegetation that's there and then you fertilize it and you had deer basically eat it to the ground because they identify that there's like you say these nutrients and these minerals that are now in that vegetation and they graze it down but you know we were talking about uh, using it all over the country is the application the same for say you know our our fall annuals like brassicas and and wheat and oats and things of that nature over say clover do you have a different mix for guys that that plant you know perennials like clover well when we designed the 6126 there's so many different food plot mixes that have clover in them now we didn't want to uh, have a lot of nitrogen in the fertilizer to burn that would burn the clover up so the 6126 can be used on the clover or we also have a, a new product that's uh, O1020 that has no nitrogen in it, but it, it puts the phosphorus and a lot of potassium into the, into the clover that, that it seems to really respond well to the O1020. And uh, we've had some deer farmers that have clover in their deer, plant, deer pens, and they have been blown away with the O1020. They're seeing clover leaves that you can put two quarters and a nickel on the leaf and still see leaf. Just really impressed with what it's doing for the clover. So as far as we design this for the wildlife, but for the plants and all plants have certain needs, you know, your, your clovers and, and legumes, they make their own nitrogen. So they don't need as much nitrogen, but they still need the phosphorus. They still need the potassium. And by putting that directly into the plant, you know, it's, they all pretty much have the same basic needs on what they need, but some like more more phosphorus than others. You know, some like more potassium than others. But we we developed kind of a mid range to cover everything with the six twelve six. If you're a, a landowner or a hunter with a soil test, like I'm sitting here looking over mine. Uh, some of this kind of reads like Latin to me. You know, for for those of us who are who are still on that steep learning curve, uh, how do you come up with a you know, soil test-based fertilizer mix. I mean, do you recommend starting with the, the one that's designed for well, everything? one that's designed for everything, you know, will do kind of hit everything. When they're 
given your calculations on your soil test, you know, when you fill out the box, they want to know what you're planting. And then they base the fertilizer recommendations based off of what you're planting and, you know, how much that plant needs versus this plant or whatever. But it's also taken into consideration your soil pH and everything else. So if you've got a low pH, you're going to have to have more fertilizer to get the same results. By going foliar and spraying it directly on the plants, you're taking that out of the equation. pH is still important in that some plants like a high pH, some like a low pH, but the fertilizer is already in the plant going in through the leaves, so it's not being bound up in the soil. And it's, you know, if it gets bound up in the soil, if your pH is off, it doesn't matter how much fertilizer you put to it, you're never going to get the right fertilizer into your plants. But by going with a liquid, you, do, you get what the plants need. So like on my place, we got a very strong mix of sandy loam to prairie to it just, we're right on the, the, you know, mid part of the black belt. So we just, we kind of ebb and flow depending on which part of the property you're on. So I'm running, I'm looking right here from a pH of four and a half up to eight. So it sounds like mm -hmm. that option would be pretty good for me since we would otherwise have to be breaking out a calculator every time we change parts of the property. Exactly. You know, in a, in a lot of places, especially, you know, if you've got a small kill plot back in the middle of the woods that you've got to take a four-wheeler to get into or, or you know, a, you, you can't get a lime truck or, or a, a spreader buggy from the co-op in there to it. And, you're, you know, that, that kind of limits the options on what you can do to get your soil pH up to where it needs to be to get the best results out of a, out of a granular fertilizer where using a liquid, it takes that out of the equation and makes it a lot simpler to get your kill plots where you, where you want them so they're attracting the, the wildlife to them. So it's still going to be a good idea to get your soil test done and amend your soil with what's needed, where it's needed. But what I'm hearing you say is that with liquid fertilizer, you're less dependent upon that soil to deliver the fertilizer. And also some people have been known to procrastinate a little bit as they get towards deer <laughs> season. And maybe they don't have a soil test done. Uh, this would be a good option to <laughs> alleviate that for those guys that hadn't got a soil test and they don't really know what's going on. Well, exactly. You know, I get calls every day from people says, you know, well, do I need to do a soil test? And, you know, the first thing you need to know is what plants you're planting and what pH level they like. And if, you know, if you're planting something that likes a pH in a five to six range and you're down here at four, that plant's not going to grow and, and do well. Or if you're at a seven or eight and you need to be down in the five to half, six, seven range, certain plants like certain pHs. So if you want the best out of your plots, you need to do the soil test and, and, and get the pH in, in where it needs to be. Well, liquid fertilizer has a unique set of um, requirements that a person who's new to it is going to have to, they, they got some equipment they're going to need to invest in most likely if they don't have a sprayer. There's also some issues, can be issues with uh, obtaining water. You know, uh, for a lot of our guys, maybe they don't have running water on their hunt property. What do you recommend people do for if they're running into an issue, say, where they, they don't have running water? Have you been able to solve that problem for folks? Oh, yeah. Uh, me being in the, the liquid business and handling the liquid fertilizer, I have access to 275-gallon, 330-gallon totes, which is, you know, plastic tote with a metal cage around it. And, you know, if they don't have water on their hunting club, they can get a tote and get the water that they need and put it in the back of the truck and take water with them to go spray. And that'll take care of that problem. Or, you know, I had one customer, his food plots were like three miles from his cabin where he had water and he was having to run back and forth with a little, he had a 15 gallon sprayer. You know, he's spending all his time running back and forth to fill his sprayer up. Right. So having, uh, you know, having a, a way to take water with you helps that. But if they don't have a sprayer and they have land, I don't see how anybody survives without a sprayer if they have land, you know, would helping uh, using chemicals to control fire lanes and fence rows and, and keep the privet hedge beat back and where they don't want it, it you know, you 
you just about got to have a sprayer if you've got land. Well, and that, that brings to mind, you know, a lot of folks want to know, like when it comes to herbicides, can you mix your herbicides with your liquid fertilizer? And, you know, you take a scenario like a lot of the Roundup Ready forage crops that are out there. If you wanted to apply liquid fertilizer while you were herbiciding those crops, can you mix the two? Well, sometimes you can. It depends on the on the, the chemical itself. The pHs may be different, and you know if you've got an acid in a base, you 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 get to playing with chemistry there. And we always recommend if they want to try that to to mix a little bit in a jar and see if it'll stay in as a liquid, because sometimes you can mix stuff together and it'll it'll look like toothpaste. It'll congeal up or clabber, look like soured milk or something. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had had customers call and say, hey, it, it clabbered up in my tank. And then they said what they did. And, you know, I had told them to do a jar test and they figured, well, if it'll do it. So they just went ahead and mixed it without <laughs> doing the jar test. And then they had to clean it out. So, you know, you learn a lot by trial and error, but we have had people mix it with, um, with Roundup without any issues. And, and, you know, a lot of that depends on the pH of the water that they're using to, to go in the tank as well. Even our professional turf people that, that use our products, anytime they're going to mix a fertilizer with any, any other chemical, they do a jar test to make sure that it's not going to cause an issue. Well, you know, one of the issues that I've, I've used liquid fertilizer with success, and one of the issues that I ran into was making sure that my sprayer, or calibrating my sprayer, uh, and making sure that I wasn't putting out too much liquid, um, but I was putting out enough. Right. What do you advise people do if they're trying to figure out, hey, I've got an acre food plot, I've got a two and a half gallon per minute sprayer, how do I know that I'm putting out enough liquid? You know, how can I calibrate that? What do you recommend folks do to make sure they got their mix? Well, you know, most most of the newer sprayers, ATV sprayers, you can go online. If it didn't come with a calibration chart with a sprayer, and the calibration chart would say it, you know, 20 PSI running four miles an hour, you're putting out 15 gallons of water per acre. And then it's listed as GPA on the chart. And then it'll give you another one at, you know, 30 PSI, 40 PSI. So the higher pressure that you have, the more water you're putting out. And then, of course, the faster speed you go, the less water you're putting out per acre. So you got an acre plot and you know you're putting out 15 gallons of water per acre running at your normal three or four miles an hour that you're running while you're spraying, then you would mix two, two and a half gallons of the fertilizer and then the rest with water and go spray. It's, it seems simple, but without knowing how much water you're putting out per acre, then that creates either having to find a chart or do a calibration test, which they make little containers that will hang on your spray boom or, or your spray nozzle. And you can measure off a hundred feet. And if your sprayer is spraying 10 feet wide, you know, it'd give you a thousand square feet. You run that hundred foot and see how much water that you put out during that hundred foot. And you spray in 10 foot wide, that gives you a thousand square feet, 43,560 square feet in an acre. You can divide that in there, see how many times to multiply by what you caught in the jar. So it gets real complicated in a hurry, but I usually, tell everybody to fill their sprayer up with water, run over that acre food plot and see how much water they used. It's just a lot easier that way than having to get into all the math. And, you know, if you know you're going to be planting and using the liquid this fall and you don't want to run over your food plot, run out there and do it, you know, with just plain water in it before you plant it or do it on a half acre, something that makes the math easy and, and takes the guesswork out of it. Right. So what kind of differences do you typically see in sprayers and, you know, how do you typically advise it, you know, calibrate and make sure it's not too much or too little? Well, you know, some of the sprayers have a boom that, you know, you know, you got an exact width that you can easily see your spray in. And then one like mine's boomless. I'm covering about 36 feet. I'll set it on, let it run and measure my width. But with the liquid, if you put it all in one spot, you're going to burn it but it's not so important to get exactly the same 
rate over the whole space. So if you slow down in one area and speed up in another, it's not going to be detrimental to your plot. I'm not sure if I answered that correctly. I think I, I think that makes sense. So like you're talking about, I just think about areas where, especially tight food plots, like think if you're planting a long, narrow strip and yep. you go down and maybe you need to make two passes to cover that strip. You go down to the end. Well, when you make your turnaround, you're putting out a lot more water at that spot where you make that seven point turn or however many it has to be, you're putting out a lot more water in that particular spot than what you are when you're just going straight four miles an hour, five miles an hour. So you just are saying that basically you're not going to burn that area. You'd have to really, really pump it to an area to, to burn that, that area. That's right. But you know, usually you want to turn your sprayer off when you're turning around. So you don't, you don't want to waste, you know, you could use, if you've got a 25 gallon tank while you're making that seven point turn, you could waste a gallon to a gallon and a half of spray right there at that one turnaround. And then that would leave you short of having enough to cover your whole acre. So, you know, you want to, you want to be efficient with it, cover your whole food plot, but you don't want to put it all out at, you know, while you're turning around on each end either. Clint, they call that a uh, horse sense right there. You see, that's why you and I <laughs> sell land, you know, cause we're sitting there going, well, I hope I don't burn my, my food plot with my sprayer when I'm turning around and Chris is going, turn the damn thing off, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, it seems complicated and difficult if you've never done it or never sprayed, but once you see how easy it really is and, and how uncomplicated it is, it makes it so much more fun to be able to go out there, pour two and a half gallon jug in your sprayer and in five minutes time be sprayed your food plot versus going to get five or six bags of granular, getting a spreader either on a tractor or pull behind a spreader like we use that's always got a flat tire every time you get ready to use it. It's just rusted out, rusted out, <laughs> you know, PTO shafts already rusted up because, you know, it's metal. It's, there's so many factors that it takes out of the equation that makes it so much easier to use and, and, and more efficient. And since it is going directly into the plant, it doesn't take near as much liquid to get the same results as you would with granular. Two, two and a half gallons of concentrate gets you the same results as two, 250 pounds of granular. So you can save money, but you're getting what you need directly into the plants. Sounds like you can save a little back pain too. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> you know, Chris, talk, talk about the money for a bit. You know, let's just break it down as simple as we can and say over an acre, you know, an acre food plot, you're going to apply how much liquid as opposed to how much granular to have the same, well, we won't even say the same effect, but the recommended rate of granular application to the recommended rate of liquid application what does that work out to in a in a dollars and cents? Well, you know, in our sandy soil at the house down in Elba, we we normally would put out 250, 300 pounds of granular per acre when we planted, and then we'd come back in December and put another 150 pounds of uh, ammonia nitrate out on it. So, you know, we've already we're up to five, six hundred pounds of granular, and it's I don't know what thirteen, fourteen dollars a bag. You know, you're hundred and thirty, hundred and forty dollars in the granular. And with the liquid it sells we the six twelve six is, is twenty dollars a gallon, two gallons to the acre, you're looking at forty dollars an acre is a huge difference in, in price per acre versus using a the granular. There's and, no doubt. Uh, so well you, you mentioned, you know, having to come back and a lot of guys, you know, they, they do that. You know, here we go, December you go out to your food plot and you notice things are starting to look a little yellow. And uh, it's time to hit it again with, with fertilizer. So when it comes to when the best time is to fertilize with liquid, what do you recommend people do, you know, from start to finish? How many times are they going to need to apply? When should they apply? Well, first off, when they plant, we recommend, you know, cutting their granular fertilizer in half. We drop down from putting... 150, 200, 250 pounds per acre, depending on what part of the place we was on, down to 50 to 75 pounds per acre or 100 pounds per acre when we plant. And then once the plants come up and get growing where you're spraying more foliage than dirt, usually by the time it's 
three, four inches tall. It's already got a good blade on it. We'll come in and spray, which we'll plant probably in about three or four weeks if the weather's permitting, we'll plant. And then I'll go in the week right before gun season comes in, middle of November, somewhere along in there, I'll go in and put my first application of the liquid on. And that will take me usually to the round middle to the end of December. I'll go in and light it up again so it's got that extra kick in there for our rut, which is last week of January, first week or so of February. So two applications per season. Just, you know, you're still you're still putting the nutrition into the plants because they're going to need it. And the, the main reason that we always had to go back in December and put more out is like, well, the fertilizer quit working. A lot of times it's not that the fertilizer quit working, it's that it has leached down into the soil out of the root zone. I was amazed to find out how much nitrogen can move through the soil based on you know what type of soil it is and how much rain you get. It can move as much as six to nine inches with you know four or five inches of rain. And most of our food plot, their roots on roots only go down you know three, four, five inches. So you you figure month, month and a half, seven, eight, nine inches of rain, that fertilizer is way out, you know, has run way away from the roots. You know, you mentioned the rain. Is that a consideration when you're applying liquid? Do you have to get it on and, and have a period? How, how much time do you have to have before rain so that you know you're not washing it off? It needs about two hours on the plants before any rain, you know, a heavy rain gets to it. That gives it plenty of time to get into, into the leaves. Uh, usually within two hours, 80 to 90% of it's already in the plant and working. So, you, you know, how many times have you watched the, the weather and they say, you know, you're going to get a half inch rain. You say, oh, I'm, that's perfect. I'm going to go put my fertilizer down. You spread it out and then you get a two or three inch rain and, you know, it's, it's washed away. So with the liquid, if you can get two hours on there, it'll, it'll be in the plant. And then right on the opposite with the granular, if you throw it out on the ground and it lays there in the sun for three or four days, a lot of your nitrogen's already evaporated out of it and it's not getting to your plants either that way. So you don't have that that risk involved with, you know, investing a lot of money on fertilizer to throw it out there and let it either get washed away or evaporate before it gets into the soil. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. You know, we were talking a few weeks ago with Stephen Wisdom about about supplemental feeding for deer and, you know, he wasn't he wasn't recommending that you stop planting food plots and stop enhancing native vegetation. But one of the things he brought up is that when you supplementally feed deer, you can be guaranteed that that's going to get into those deer, their systems. Whereas when you plant a food plot, there's some, you know, element of what happens with nature that's going to dictate how much forage you provide. And and so for him, it was just a, a more efficient delivery method of those nutrients. And it sounds like foliar applications of liquid fertilizer is a more efficient delivery method than granular and, and bonus that you can save some money doing it and, and also provide some nutrients for wildlife that they're otherwise missing out on. You know, it sounds like the biggest issue is, is just going to be getting that sprayer up and calibrated. And I know you've worked with a lot of folks and some people are hesitant to ask questions because they don't want to. They don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing. But I can tell you, it's uh, it's challenging your first couple times to get it right. I'm sure you answer phone calls all the time, Chris, of folks that are they're trying to get it up and running with this. So if folks want to check out uh, Alabama Liquid Fertilizer, Clark's Plot Nutrients, and uh, give you a call, maybe ask you some questions on how it might work for them and what they're trying to plant, where they're trying to plant. Uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? They can uh, give me a call anytime at uh, 334-233-2687. If I don't answer, leave a message and I'll I'll get back to you. I love talking about food plots and deer and turkey and glad to answer any questions that I can anytime about anything to do with food plots, whether it's fertilizer related or not. I'm not an expert, but I've been around it enough to know a little bit about a lot of it. And uh, I can hopefully answer their questions and, and get them pointed in the right direction and and also where they can get our product right now we've got them in the uh, our southern seed and feed warehouse so any of the southern seed and feed stores that's in alabama and mississippi they can get it into their feed store they'll have to you know ask the managers about it and you know if they call me and say 
where they're at, I can tell them what store they can get it at. And then, uh, you know, depending on if it's too far away from them to come to one of those stores, we can ship it direct to them. And we put it in two and a half gallon jugs to sell in the stores and to ship, but we also do both. I talked with a customer this morning that's going to be getting a 55 gallon drum because he's got 26 acres that he's going to be spraying. You know, we can do it in 55 gallon drums and 275 gallon totes either way for, you know, people with a lot of food plots, a lot of acreage. We owe it to the wildlife to put back into their habitat and to help bring on the next generation of the deer and, and, to, and to help them be healthier. And you can do that with year-round plots, supplemental feeding, all the good things that, that we do as, as game managers or wildlife managers and provide what the, what the wildlife are needing makes it better for them, but it also creates more enjoyment for, for you and seeing the results of the work that you've done. And then if you're bringing kids and, and folks into the outdoors that hadn't been involved before, they don't want to sit in the empty food plot for four hours and not see anything. So if your food plot has what the deer and, and turkey too are needing, and they're sitting there watching deer and turkey all afternoon, they are a lot happier about coming back and doing it again than if they sit there and not see anything. And you know, we see all the time food plot, pictures of food plots where they're 12, 14, two foot tall, thick, beautiful soybeans, you know, clovers, all this kind of stuff. If the food plot is foot and a half, two foot tall, the deer aren't eating it. Mine does good to get up more than an inch and a half, two inches tall all season long because my deer are living in it. Yeah. And we've had a lot of customers say, man, my food plot's not growing. I can't, I, I, it's not doing anything. And I tell them, you know, put an exclusion cage out there and call right. me back. And they'll see in that cage that it's two, three, four, five, six inches taller than the rest of the plot because the deer are mowing it. And, you know, I actually had one customer up in Union Springs that they ate his plot and then tore into his exclusion cage and ate that too. So, <laughs> you know, he, he's hooked. But, uh, you know, we're, we're glad to answer questions anytime. We've got a Facebook page for Alabama Liquid Fertilizer and uh, Clark Plot Nutrients. And that will uh, have our numbers on there that they can get in touch with us. And, you know, give us a call anytime on anything to do with food plots or hunting or fishing. We, we talk. We like to talk outdoors. Yeah. As much, I spend a lot of time in the truck going from location to location delivering our other products. So if I can talk to somebody while I'm going down the road about hunting and, and be working and get paid to work at the same time, it don't get much better than that. All right. <laughs> well, Chris, it's been eye-opening, and I appreciate you uh, telling us a little bit about liquid fertilizer and how that can benefit food plots this fall. We wish you good luck going into your planting season, and I will look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. I appreciate y'all having me on. And, and once again, anybody with any questions or interested in talking more about the liquids, to give me a call at 334-233-2687. Clint, the hardest part about, about switching over to liquid is, uh, is getting that sprayer calibrated. Once you get that part figured out, and there's good resources online, and if you call Chris, he can help talk you through that there's there's the redneck way of doing it which is perfectly fine and then you can get detailed and really do your calculations and measure it either way can work out that's probably the biggest hurdle i would say is to getting switched over and then just if you have water issues you know that can be something else but there's a lot of little transfer pumps that you can get to transfer a natural water source if you got ponds on your property uh if you're just doing it alone there's definitely a some easy ways to transfer water if you can't get all the way back to your your consistent water source. I think the thing I like about it just knowing that you're getting all that fertilizer into that plant through that foliar application as opposed to having to be reliant upon pH and dependent upon rainfall and and you can kind of live and die by those things. You guys going to be able to try some of this stuff out on your place this year? Yeah, I think my plan right now is to try it on, you know, probably a third to a half of the property and, and do a little compare and contrast. Yeah, I, uh, and I definitely like being able to sweeten up a spot, you know, that's pretty cool too. You should try that as well, especially in both season, you're trying to get closer to deer. You know, if you've got a big food plot, you can sweeten up a corner of it. I've put it around my bow stands and had deer that were walking through like an open hardwood area uh, and just, just fertilizing, just 
Greenbrier and and other little native browse and the deer would walk straight through those areas to get near my my bow stand it really did make a big difference and uh the only thing is don't don't fertilize something that you want to grow because i've seen it like fertilizing a honeysuckle they will eat it to the ground i mean just eat it all the way down to the dirt so you do have to be careful if you're fertilizing like hardwoods that you're wanting to grow or something like that <laughs> they'll uh they'll nip everything off that stuff and uh, but it, it really does work. It's been cool to cool to play with over the last couple of years. I've seen you hunt. You definitely need all the help you can get. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. As always, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like us to email you the podcast each week, just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land to join our weekly email. I'm Joe Baya, joined here with Clint Flowers, and we will see you guys next week. This week's shows were brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also, Great Days Outdoors, the South's finest hunting and fishing magazine. Pick up your copy wherever magazines are sold or check them out at greatdaysoutdoors.com. And also, Alabama Act Credit, buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also, Bay County Armory. Are you looking for a purpose-built AR-10 or AR-15? If you are, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. And also brought to you by Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. A great gift for the outdoorsman in your life, Black Belt Bounty features award-winning writers, photography, and recipes from some of Alabama's nationally recognized celebrity chefs. Pick up your copy at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty. And also, Wildlife Management Solution. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com.